You're basically John the Baptist for the league. Well, it needs one. It needs a messiah to come after you. You end up beheaded, but, you know, yeah. for, for the good of the game. Well, you'd be willing to lay down your life, right? OTB AM. Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Now, we've got a new slot. It's called You Had to Be There, where we're asking journalists to give us five of the greatest moments of individual brilliance that they've seen uh, while they were working or while they were football fans. Uh, that actually makes you forget that you're there for work. And I'm delighted to say we have renowned football journalist Jonathan Wilson with us for the very first one of these. Jonathan, good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Um, this is great. You've, you've put together a list which is perfectly in uh, our wheelhouse for those of us of a certain age. And I am delighted as a Villa fan to see that one of my favourite players is on your list here. Um, Mark Bosnich is number one here. Well, I've, I've done them in uh, in chronological order, to be fair. I hadn't, I hadn't actually ranked them one to five. Fair enough. And I should also say I was at that game as a, as a Sunderland fan. So it was, uh, yeah, Sunderland against Villa in the League Cup in 93-4. And Villa, of course, went on to win the League Cup that year. Um, Sunderland were uh, second flight side at the time. They'd, they'd beaten Leeds in the previous round to, you know, with then a Premier League club. And I think that first half at Roker Park is as well as I've ever seen Sunderland play. And at halftime, they're 2-0 down because Bosnich just produced a string of ludicrous saves. Um, so there was, there was a, a Gordon Armstrong header from close range, he tipped over. Then the really great save was a, a looping header from Phil Gray. Uh, so Sonnen had Phil Gray and, and Don Goodman up front. Um, and I think, I think that was the first season they'd really sort of clicked as a partnership. And it, this looping header, and I, I, was, I was right in line with it behind it in the full end. And the, the, the pace which Bosnich got across his goal and then flung himself up to just tip it over. I, I, I think that's the, the, the best save I've ever seen in, in the flesh. Uh, absolutely astonishing. Uh, you have a technical ability of a foot movement to, you know, to work out what you need to do and then the athleticism to, to spring up there. Uh, and suddenly end up losing the game 4-1. Uh, but Ron Atkinson, the Villa manager, said afterwards, yeah, there's only one team out there and they end up getting beat. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, th- I think it can be difficult at times to pick out one individual performance, particularly now when the game is so team-oriented. And I think you know, that's why goalkeepers kind of fit this sort of pattern quite well. And Bosnich that day was just just absolutely unbeatable. It, it's funny because like, he was actually great that whole season. And um, there's just a period of his career at Villa where he's really sensational at stopping shots and actually has, has a period where he, st- he saves lots of penalties and wins penalty shootouts for Villa. Um, and I, I don't know, did it, was he in the top rank of goalkeepers at that time or was there some kinks in his game that prevented him from being thought of as like absolute top tier? Uh, I, I think at that time, because he was still pretty young then, wasn't he? He could only have been early 20s. Um, and I, I think there's definitely a sense that, that he was, he was going to go on to great things. Obviously, he did go to Manchester United um, where yeah, he's one of those, those many goalkeepers who, who sort of struggled in the in the post Michael shadow, um, so yeah, I, I think certainly that mid nineties period, you just said he was in the top sort of five or six in the Premier League or Premiership as it was then, um, with the potential to, to 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 go on to far far greater. And the strange thing is, you know, I, I now I now do a bit of work with him on Australian TV, and I, I mentioned this game, and he sort of said nobody ever talks about this game, nobody nobody saw it. You had to be a Sunderland fan or a Villa fan to watch it, because why would you be watching Sunderland v Villa? Uh, and I'd actually I'd looked up this game on on YouTube 
uh, a while ago, just as it was, in fact, when I first started work, working with Mark Olsen, it's just to see if, if, he, if he had been as good as I remembered it. And I couldn't find it. So I was sort of thinking, was the, the, does the footage even exist? But it is there now on YouTube as a 10 minute uh, highlights package where you see, I mean, that's say from Armstrong, say from Gray. Then there's another one from Gray when, when he, he gets off his line very quickly. Gray so tries to dink it over him and Bosnich just, just sort of thrusts up an arm and blocks it. And so, yeah, he was absolutely as good as I remember them being. It's a pretty exciting Aston Villa team. It has uh, peak Tony Daly. It has Daly and Atkinson just like feeling himself as well. And um, it's kind of, you know, uh, big Ron's flamboyant football representative of him as a man and a character. Yeah, and well, that first goal, the first Villa goal, which uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, was pretty much the first time Villa had gotten the Sunderland half. Is I think it's Kevin Richardson plays the ball through, and yeah, it's a classic counter attack. But you sort of see the difference in finishing between a really good side and a you know a first division side as was then. That uh, so Atkinson's sort of running on a slight diagonal right to left, and I don't think there's anything to be wrong with with Alec Chamberlain Sunderland keeper's positioning, but he just sort of slices across it, and, and it's sort of this little sort of it's sort of slightly the outside of his right foot, sort of a little jab, and and Chamberlain, you know, his, his whole weight goes the wrong way, and the ball pings in the bottom corner, and you just sort of think, yeah, oh god, that's that's proper finishing. That's that's what 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 we're lacking. So I mean, Atkinson that game was great. Uh, Ray Houghton came for bench and scored very quickly, and and, and obviously, you know, getting towards the end of his career by then, but but helping it things together in in midfield. Um, I think Paul McGraw was still there at the back, wasn't he, in in, in that team? So yeah, that that it was a. It was a classic big run side, wasn't it? it yeah, was, totally. It was flamboyant, great to watch, but maybe lacking consistency you, you, you need to win the biggest prizes. Paul McGrath and Steve Staunton, possibly? He's definitely oh. on the books. I'm not sure he's playing that game. Maybe. Yeah, I, I can't remember that. I, I definitely, I'm, I'm pretty sure McGrath was playing against Phil Gray. It looks like Earl Barrett's at left back for whatever reason. Um, so uh, you've also got Niall Quinn, number two on the list. Yeah, well, <laughs> partly appealing to the audience, but... Uh, no, I, mean, I so I remember when Sunderland signed Niall Quinn, um, and I think his debut was away against Nottingham Forest, which was the first away game of the Premier League season in '967, and he was brilliant that day. And Sunderland won four-one. I think they might even have been four-nil up at half-time, um, and then I, th- I think he played sort of eight league games and then got his knee injury. And I, I like a lot of Sunderland fans. I, mean, I, I the, the, the game I'm talking about is is when Sunderland beat Chelsea four one. I was actually working at that game. Um, it was one of my, my first games as a as a journalist. Um, but I, I was I was at that Forest game as a fan. Uh, but I, I remember sort of pretty quickly, a couple of months into that that first season um, of ninety six seven, becoming pretty disillusioned and thinking, oh, God, this guy's so slow. Why have we signed him? You know, he's he's clearly whatever he had at, at City, he's he's lost. And, and, you know, it took him a couple of years to, to get that properly diagnosed and sorted out. And then I was away at university, so I wasn't, I wasn't watching Sunderland Live that often. And started to hear from mates who were going that actually this guy's really good. And I couldn't quite sort of believe it. And I, rem- I remember sort of um, him, him, him scoring in an away defeat and sort of thinking, oh, God, that's going to keep him in the side another half dozen games. That's, that's not what we wanted. And then I went to, to see Sunderland away at QPR and he scored one and had two disallowed and was sensational. And I was sort of like, okay, that's that's the play he he, yeah, he should have been with if he hadn't had the knee injury. And then uh the, yeah, those those two 97, 8, 98, 9, the first two seasons when he was together with, with Kevin Phillips, they were yeah, brilliant together. Uh 98, 9, Phillips was actually injured for a lot of the season, which people forget. And, and Quinn and Michael Bridges and Danny Dicchio carried it. 
And then that first season up in the Premier League, um, suddenly got beat 4-0 at Stamford Bridge on the opening day. And then there's this game beginning of December uh, when Quinn absolutely destroys Marcel Desai. And, and that was the first game. I think some of them were, were third uh, off the back of that win. But this, that was the first game where I sort of thought, actually, maybe they, are, they genuinely are quite good. They're not just sort of riding this euphoric wave. And the, I mean, the other astonishing thing about, about that game was the middle of midfield. They had Eric Wah, a sort of unheard of French midfielder, and Paul Thurlwell, a local kid. That they had, you know, um, Kevin Ball was out. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 whole of a normal midfield. Uh, I think Stefan Schwartz must have been out as well. The whole whole of that central midfield. Uh, Alex Ray wasn't there. Was was missing, and so you know, very low expectations. And Sunderland took the lead. Um, in I think, I think the second minute and that first half they absolutely destroyed Chelsea uh, and, and, and yeah Desai he, he played the next week so he wasn't injured but he was substituted at half time because he just couldn't handle Quinn Why was he so good? What Was it uh, goal scoring? Was it assisting? Was it just control of the ball? What was it? Well he he, he scored twice and I, th- I think he, he set up the other two so that he got he got a goal after two minutes which is Eric Wire. A, a totally uncharacteristic sort of dribble through the middle and squared it and Quinn pokes it in. But it, it was his movement. Um, the, the I mean, yeah, I, th- I think it was Frank LeBeuf playing alongside Desai. So you sort of assume uh, Quinn would, would would have a go at LeBeuf as being the, the, the less physically imposing. But he didn't. He picked on Desai. Uh, so it was his movement dragging him out of position. It was, I think the thing with Quinn, the people who didn't watch him regularly perhaps don't, don't quite appreciate is how good his chest control and his first touch was. So he, he didn't have much pace. That, that's the one criticism. But, you know, a player of that size is never going to have much pace. Um, so I think it's the the third goal is a ball in, so a diagonal ball in from the right that he takes down at the back post. And it's a little side for volley. And he scored a load of goals like that. It was a goal he scored in the League Cup against Luton. This brilliant sort of lob volley having taken on his chest. And it could have been this, this brilliant chest control Control volley, and Ed Tahui makes a very good save, and, and and Phillips follows it in. Um, then then he gets the fourth, which is this. Uh, it's a corner comes across the back post. It sort of missed everybody, and it's a very controlled volley into the far post. He doesn't just lash it; he he places this volley, and and so you know it was a day when I guess he knew physically he was overmanning the the, the guy he was up against, but also all of that technical ability was also right at the highest level and there's a moment in the second half which again I haven't been able to find uh, footage of but I, I'm pretty sure it happened I mean I, I've found my notes on that day where I've written it down that someone got a throw on the right and Quinn and Phillips pass the ball to each other twice and then I think it's Quinn has hits the volley so the ball doesn't touch the ground from this throw in to Quinn hitting the volley and it hits the outside of the post and if that had gone in it would have been one of the greatest of all goals and I think between them, Quinn and Phillips scored something like 149 goals over those three seasons, which yeah, if you strike bang to be banging in 50 between them each season on average is is incredible. Does the fact that there is no video footage make this even more special, Jonathan, that you can be like, I was there and you'll never get to see it? <laughs> well, but part, part of me thinks have I just made it up as my brain sort of somehow conjured that. I'm very glad I still got the, the, the note I took at the time. And, and those were the days when you did take handwritten notes. You weren't just like, knocking it all down on your laptop. Um, but yes, it does. That, that, that in my head, it was this incredibly pure bit of movement. And I'm sure in reality, it was sort of slightly scruffier than that. Um, 
but but yeah, the, the and you sort of the, the third goal as well. You sort of think of the goal it could have been if Ed Dehu hadn't made that save. And I remember it being you know a real sort of scrambling diving save. You only just get fingertips to it, and obviously can't get enough power on the save to push it away. But you know that that could have been a, a really stunning, stunning goal. Which, as I say, Quince Quince got a load of those volleys that I, th- I think he probably doesn't quite get credit for. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think probably because of his involvement in football afterwards, we've forgotten uh, just what a great footballer he was. Especially here because you know he's a central figure in Saipan and all that too. But anyway, John Kennedy is number three. This is um, this is unheralded for a lot of people. Barcelona nil, Celtic nil in the UEFA Cup. Fourth round, second leg in 2004. What was so good about John Kennedy's performance? I think it's just it was so unexpected. So to, to set the scene, Celtic had obviously reached the UEFA Cup final in 2003, lost to Jesse Mourinho's Porto, and, and and following Celtic, or, you know, covering Celtic at that time was was a was a brilliant thing. You know, the 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 atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. That was you know, Martin O'Neill's team, uh, really exciting, attacking, dynamic football. Uh, yeah, Celtic away fans obviously were always very, very noisy as well. And so I'd been at the first leg and there'd been there'd been some problem with my accreditation. So I ended up uh, stuck behind the goal just, just with the fans, uh, which is never ideal when you're bouncing a laptop on your knee. But um, uh, Celtic, uh, were, I can't remember when they get the goal, but anyway, the, 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 the second half, um, Thiago Motta is sent off. And as he goes off, I'm trying to work out how Barcelona are rearranging themselves. And this is what I don't know, 10, 15 minutes in the second half. And I'm sort of going, I think there's only nine players there. I can't work. And then going, yeah, only nine. So I said to the bloke next to us, can, sorry, can you just count the Barcelona players? Tell me how many there are. And he's, oh, there's only nine. I wonder what's going on. So I, I rang a, a friend in the press box and said, how come Barcelona have got nine men? And he went, oh, uh, Rab Douglas and uh, Saviola were sent off at half time for, for fighting in the tunnel. And because Celtic were yeah, d- defending the other end, we hadn't realised that um, uh, Marshall was, was on for, for Douglas and Celtic were also down to 10 before the sending off. So it was 9v10 in the second half. Celtic win it 1-0. Go to Barcelona. So they've, they've got uh, Marshall in goal, who was a kid at the time. So I, I could have picked him. I didn't want to pick two keepers. And uh, they end up, I think Boba Baldo was was suspended as well. So John Kennedy comes in as an 18-year-old. And the first 20 minutes of this game, Barcelona absolutely battered them. And Marshall makes a couple of really good saves. But you, you realise that about halfway through the first half, that Barcelona is starting to lose hope. And one of the reasons for that is that Kennedy has totally taken Ronaldinho out of the game. And there's one tackle in particular, I remember, midway through the first half, where... It looks like Ronaldinho's got past him and he just stretches out a leg and just clips the ball away. And and then from then on, it was as if that tackle gave him confidence and his performance from then was incredibly mature. And I remember watching that and Celtic end up holding out pretty comfortably once they survive that, that initial storm, hold out pretty comfortably for a nil-nil to, to go through. And I remember thinking, right, Marshall and Kennedy, that these two kids are both brilliant and they're both going to go on to have great careers. And unfortunately, Kennedy got crocked by, by the Romanian Yolganea and, and was never really the same again. But he did have that one performance as an 18-year-old in the Camp Nou where he was absolutely out of this world and Mark Ronaldinho out the game. Did you know that there is a, a footballer currently playing for Fluminense called John Kennedy? Uh, he was born in the early 2000s, so potentially named after that moment where uh, you know <laughs> the temporary Fluminense star was marked out of it. I mean, I, I, I think there's maybe a more famous John Kennedy he might be named after, but uh, <laughs> I, I'd love to believe that's true. <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll we'll do some digging and try and find out. Uh, next on our list is uh, Andre Ayew for Ghana against Tunisia in the Cup of Nations in 2012. Yeah, so um, I remember interviewing Ayew's father, Abedi Pele, uh, in in Ghana when the Cup of Nations was there in 2008, and he was talking about his two kids and 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 how good they were and how excited he was by them. And 2010 in Angola, that Ghana side, really good young side, and Samuel Inkum, uh, Agiman Badu, Kwadu Asamoa, Asamoa Jan, really good side, got to the final, uh, lost to, to that very good Egypt team. And so there was sort of high, high expectations of them uh, in Equatorial and Gabon uh, in 2012. And they, they, they sort of had struggled slightly to get going in the group stage and they played Tunisia in the quarterfinal. And Tunisia, I mean, particularly back then, were, were always a, a very sort of, very organised, very hard to play against. Um, there'd always be all kinds of chicanery going on. Um, they, they were a hard team to love, whereas that Ghana had, you know, a lot of, a lot of life about them. And uh Ghana take the lead early on uh, a corner that's flicked on and John Mensah, who actually went on to play for Sunderland, scores with a back post header. Uh, Tunisia then against the other play equalised just for half-time uh, through Saba Khalifa. And then Ghana absolutely batter them and it's Ayu leading everything. Everything is going through him and he's sort of playing as a second striker just behind Jan. And, and this goes back to what I was saying you know, when I was talking about Bosnich, that I think in modern football, it's increasingly hard to pick out an individual. So you think of, say, David Beckham's performance against Greece in, in 2001, and that was a stunning individual performance. But it's actually a sign that everything is broken down, that one player is having to take everything on. And, and actually, I think that was detrimental to both Beckham and England in the longer term, because Beckham kept trying to do that. And there's only certain very limited circumstances in which one player running everywhere works. I think the slight exception to that is if you're playing as a second striker, and your midfield sits quite deep. You, you you can leave your post a bit more and go hunting the ball. And Ayu just kept going back, picking up the ball, running with it. Uh, kept getting fouled. He took an absolute battle in that game. Um, and Tunisia were getting deeper and deeper. They take it to extra time. You sort of you're thinking, well, I've seen this before. Tunisia will nick something from a set play, or they'll they'll uh, they'll win it on penalties. That's that's, that's what Tunisia kept on doing. Um, and Ayu just keeps going, keeps going. Uh, Abdenur, the centre-back, gets sent off for Tunisia uh, early in the second half of extra time. I, I think for a foul on Ayu. And then a couple of minutes after that, it's as if that, that moment has totally discombobulated Tunisia. There's a very simple ball in from the right. Matluti, the, the Tunisia keeper, drops it. And the ball just drops to Ayu, I don't know, uh, four yards out, quite a narrow angle. And you can almost see the look of surprise and panic on his face that he's got this chance having he absolutely run himself into the ground for the previous hour, but he's got enough technical ability to just sort of poke that over the line and uh, and Ghana win it win it 2-1. But then he he probably I think had was worn out by that and you know he'd taken such a kicking um that in in the semi-final against Zambia he you know he just he just wasn't there and Zambia ended up winning it and and going on you know one of the great Cups of Nations stories that of their them beating Cote d'Ivoire in the final in, in Libreville 19 years after the air crash. But that performance from, from Ayu in, uh, in Franceville in the quarterfinal, it was just you know, the, the physical courage of it, the, 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 the kicking he took and then just kept going back. Absolutely remorseless and relentless. Perfect. The last one that we have is Romano Lukaku. 
Yeah, he's a player who I have to say I don't really understand anymore. I, I, I thought I'd I thought I got him. I thought I kind of uh, I'd seen enough of him at Inter and with Belgium to sort of think, yeah, he he actually is a really great player. And what happened to Manchester United was Manchester United's fault. And then you saw him at Chelsea last season, and and I, I'm, I'm back to being baffled again. But Lukaku, when he's on song, I think is an incredibly potent forward, incredible range of abilities. And this game against Brazil in the quarterfinal of the World Cup, which was in Kazan, I'd been based in Kazan for most of the tournament. I was very fortunate that I got a load of great games. So I saw Germany go out. Uh, I saw Poland go out. I saw Argentina go out. And then I saw Brazil go out this night. And uh, I'd, I'd seen Brazil. I'd, I'd, I'd been at the game in Samara when they beat Mexico in the last 16. You thought, oh, yeah, they're, 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 they're really good. They're the team to beat in this tournament. And the, the team lineups come in, and looking at the Belgium team, think, okay, Lukaku's playing through the middle. Oh, where's De Bruyne playing? It doesn't quite make sense. Then they line up, and you realize, no, Lukaku's playing wide right, and De Bruyne's playing as a as a, as a false nine. You sort of think, oh, how, how's that going to work? And you realize that, that Martinez had got it absolutely right, that it, it's, it totally threw, threw Brazil. Lukaku's movement, pulling out to that right side, creating space was perfect. Uh, they Belgium really sort of... Uh, they, they focus on Brazilian left side, which you'd think would be a strength because they had Neymar and they had Coutinho down that side and, and Marcelo. Um, but actually, by by attacking them down that side, they 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 really really exposed how how weak Brazil were defensively on that side. And, and Lukaku was a huge part of that. Um, and his link up with with De Bruyne, uh, yeah, kept on coming inside and sort of inside right role. And Brazil just didn't know how to pick him up. And I thought. For a player who's so physically imposing, who's so technically good, who's so good at scoring goals, to put in a sort of self-sacrificing performance like that was all about his movement. I, I thought that that suggests a player of, of profound tactical intelligence and somebody who's prepared to sacrifice himself absolutely to the to the greater good. Uh, and I assumed he do that at Chelsea, and it, it, he didn't. Um, you know, I thought Mason Mount could do what, what De Bruyne had done done that day, and, and that didn't quite work out. But that 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 one day, his link up with De Bruyne, I thought was absolutely sensational. Oh, class! That's um, exactly what we were looking for this morning, Jonathan. Thanks a million for doing all that for us. Cheers. Cheers. No worries. Thank you. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. 